If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll put a Bible in your hand. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Steve needs one right here. Last thing I want to do is point people out like Steve, but he needs one right there. Okay. All right, well, let's go to Exodus chapter 2. We have a lot to cover here um, this morning. I know, big surprise. Uh, but <clears throat> so starting here in chapter 2, and when I say that, I, I mean we're going to go back to chapter 1 and look at some things. But um, from Adam to Jesus, there's really no one in God's word quite like Moses, okay? Um, of all the earthly dealings with Israel, they're always transacted through Moses. Moses was a prophet, he was a priest, he was a king. Um, he held all these titles and functions with the people of Israel. And so important were these functions for the people of Israel that later on they would be dispersed individually to others as a function in the nation of Israel. So only one could be a priest, only one could be a king, only one could be a prophet. You didn't have all those offices until the Lord Jesus Christ came. He himself was both was all those things, prophet, priest, and king. We're going to see in the life of Moses, there's a, there's a lot of contrasts when we go through the life of Moses. He's the son of a slave. He's also son of a queen. Um, he was born in a hut, yet he lived in a palace. He's born into poverty and yet grew up in wealth. He's the leader of armies and the keeper of sheep. He was a mighty warrior, and yet the Bible says he was the meekest man that ever lived, except for Jesus, of course. He was highly educated with the wisdom of Egypt. He dwelt in the desert, had the faith of a child. He was made for city life, yet lived in the wilderness. He was tempted with the pleasures of sin, and yet instead chose the hardship of virtue. He was backward in speech, yet talked with God. He was a fugitive with Pharaoh, and but also an ambassador from heaven. He was a giver of the law and the forerunner of grace. He died on Mount Moab and appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. No man assisted at his funeral, yet he was buried by God. We've already seen in the last chapter that Israel has been growing at a very high rate, a very alarming rate. And so in Exodus chapter 1, verse 9, we read this. It says, And he said to his people, meaning the new uh, Pharaoh, Look, the people of children of Israel are more mightier than we. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. And so Pharaoh was worried the Israelites were getting too numerous. They might join the armies, and so we got to do something to kind of like take down their numbers a bit. But everything he did, forced them to be slaves and everything like that, just had them increase, made them increase. Verse 11 says, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built up for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. And so Pharaoh's next order of business was, well, you know, uh, making things really hard for them, afflicting them with work isn't, doesn't seem to be working. So what he does is that he orders the midwives and he calls in uh, 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 Shipra and Pua, 
And he says, look, when, you, when you're there and the women are there at the birthing stool and everything else, and when a male uh, child comes out, you're to kill the male child. But if it's a, a female, you can let it live. And so, but the midwives refuse to do that. And in verse 19, they go on and they tell and they say, and the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. And so they, that's a lie. And yet God rewards them for this lie. But it also says here in verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. So this is our first uh, demonstration here of civil disobedience. If God says something and the government says another thing, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to obey God. You're supposed to obey God. And so this is what they do. And so they lie to Pharaoh, and yet God blesses them for that. And so we talked about what is graded absolutism. And so here's the definition of it right here, that when you're in conflict over two laws or virtues, your obligation is to obey the higher law of virtue or command, and you're exempt from obeying the lower law of virtue or command. Thus, when it comes to do not lie or to save innocent life, if those two things come into conflict, then you're to do the higher law, which is save innocent human life. Save innocent human life. And so we saw this with, with Shipra and Pua. We saw that with Rahab. And then we looked at 1 Samuel 16. And at one of the services, I kind of alluded to that God kind of uh, recommended to Samuel to, to lie to Saul. And so um, I'm here to tell you that's not true. Let's read it again. In 1 Samuel 16.1, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, which is in Bethlehem. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord say, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. What God did there is that he gave Samuel a cover story is what he gave him. A cover story. Hey, I'll give you a cover story, but I'm also going to give you something else to do while you're there. So the main reason you're going to go is to anoint David as king. But as you go to Bethlehem, bring a heifer with you. So if anybody asks, you just say, hey, I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord there. And so that's what he does. That's what he does. And so I want to make this very clear. God does not lie. If it sounded like I was saying it was okay uh, that that uh, God was telling him to lie, it's not. That's not what I meant. So I apologize for that. Let's make it clear. He doesn't lie, and he doesn't tell us to lie, okay? But he did certainly give him a cover story, didn't he? Another way to go down there. And so um, we continue to teach on graded absolutism. And look what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 7. In Matthew 12, 7, Jesus says this. He says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless or the blameless. And he was speaking about his disciples and how they were going through the grain fields and they were plucking off the heads of the grain and just popping in their mouths and eating. And they're saying, well, you're not supposed to be able to do that on the Sabbath. And what is it that Jesus says? Don't you understand? Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made for man. I believe that there are some common sense uh, expectations to the law such as one regarding that special bread that Jesus was talking about when he brings that up to the to the Pharisees. He said, have you not read 
what uh, David did when he was hungry, and he went to the priest there in the tabernacle, and he was able to get the bread there, the bread that was only allowed to go to the priest after it had spent seven days there in the tabernacle. It's the, the, it's the, it's the show bread. The bread of his presence is what that's called. And so after seven days and they replaced that bread, then only the priests were allowed to eat it. Yet David was hungry. He was famished, him and his men. And so the law does not supersede the need of mankind. And so he was allowed to eat that bread. And Jesus says he was blameless in doing that. He was blameless in doing that. And so caring for human need takes precedent over keeping the letter of the law. Jesus uses this principle as that rationale for healing on the Sabbath that we went over last week. And the line of reasoning corresponds with this view. In case of emergency, extend mercy. The ceremony rules can be bent. There's no need to stand on ceremony when someone is in need or distress. All laws were there to benefit man. But if that law is being pressed to such a place where it no longer benefits man, then that law is being misapplied. And mercy needs to take place for whatever the need there is in order to benefit man. I gave a few examples of that, but when I got to marriage, I heard back from a few of you this last week. So I want to make this very, very clear. When I brought up marriage, I went to this very extreme case. And so there's kind of like normalcy of, of just kind of having disagreements in your marriage. And there's a lot of in between there before we get to that extreme case that I brought up last week. Okay. And so if there are some marital issues that are going on and uh, people come to us and say, do you think that maybe we should divorce? Absolutely not. This is what the Bible says. You know, we're to stay together. You're to represent Christ and the church. Okay. I have two believers in front of me. Are you really a believer? Yes, I am. Are you willing to do what the word of God says? Because if you're a believer, what you're telling me is that God's word trumps how you feel. Do you agree to that? Yes. Usually as we continue to go through that, one or two things happens. Either they're telling the truth or later on we find out they're lying because they're not willing to do what God's word says. Okay. A lot of times what has to happen is that, is that a husband and wife have to separate. Things are so volatile that if they, because they're not mature enough in Christ, the next step, if it's in the flesh, is possibly going to be criminal. So because of that, quite often I say, you guys need to separate. You need to separate. David, separation of the Bible, absolutely, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, okay? And why do you separate? In order to reconcile. Hopefully, you guys are apart now. Now we can work with you as individuals, your own relationship with the Lord and things like that. And as you grow in Christ, it'll bring you back to that place where you can be together again and truly love each other like Christ loved the church and, and the way you're supposed to do it. Awesome, that's wonderful. I love it when that happens, you know. But let's say, because the Bible says you're only to um, uh, dissolve a marriage if there's sexual immorality, okay? Well, 1 Corinthians 7 actually says if, if an unbeliever departs, well, what does that mean? It means that when a lot of times as unbelievers you're married and then one person comes to know Christ, the other person doesn't. Paul is saying don't dissolve that marriage just because you don't have that oneness with them. You're there to be a light and a witness and to sanctify them. They get to see Jesus in you. And so if that unbeliever wants to stay, stay in that marriage. But if he departs after you receive Christ, guess what? You're no longer under bondage to that. You can remarry. 
you can remarry. And so then I use the example of mercy instead of sacrifice in that extreme case. He said he was a believer. She said she was a believer when we got married. But then five, ten years down the road, I find out he's a serial killer. But he didn't commit sexual immorality. He didn't commit adultery. He got caught by the police and now he's in prison. Am I supposed to remain married to him the rest of my life? Because he didn't commit sexual immorality. Uh, I believe mercy instead of sacrifice. No, I don't think she should. Plus, I actually believe that he has shown himself to be an unbeliever and he has departed because he's in jail. Yeah, but that wasn't his choice. It was when he started murdering people. I don't think you have to remain married to him. Mercy instead of sacrifice. Okay. A lot of stuff in between that I don't think you get to do mercy instead of what the Word of God says. Okay. So you come to me and say, Dave, uh, you, uh, you won't believe it, but she won't feed me grapes or fan me. The marriage is brutal. No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, uh, mercy rule. I, I claim the mercy rule. No, no, uh, don't think so. Okay. So there's a lot of in between that we're going to work with so our, our, our marriage can represent Christ in the church. Amen. So I just want to make that very clear. But the mercy is there to be able to show that this law that you're saying, you're saying that Christ says you can't leave this marriage unless there's sexual immorality and yet my, my husband's end up being a mass murderer. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. You know, and, and you're going to force that upon her. No, 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 no. Mercy instead of sacrifice. That rule that I gave is no longer beneficial for her. See what I'm saying? So again, mercy instead of sacrifice. So I hope I made that clear. Now, let's go back to Exodus. And hopefully I can be clear in this teaching so as not to clean it up like I had to this last time. So anyway, Exodus 1 verse 20. It says, therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people and multiplied and grew greatly. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. Awesome. And now you have this time period that probably had to go by in order for the Pharaoh at that time to be able to see, hey, this isn't working. I told the midwives to kill the male children. It isn't working. Well, how long would that take? I would submit you would take many years before they figured that out. They can't figure that out in a month's time. They, they have this whole people group here of Israel. They don't know. It's going to take a while for them to be able to say, you know what? The numbers aren't changing. What is going on here? That would take a few years to kind of figure out. And so that's when we have this discourse here with Pharaoh and the midwives. Now it says in verse 22, so Pharaoh, now this one could be a different Pharaoh. Okay. We're going to see this here in a moment. All right. Might not be the same Pharaoh that talked to the midwives. After a few years, that Pharaoh might be gone. New Pharaoh comes and he says, this is the only way we're going to take care of the problem. Or it could be the same Pharaoh. But it says, so Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born to you shall cast in the river, every daughter you shall save alive. And so this kind of sets the stage here for chapter two of what is going on. But before we get into chapter two here, let's take a look again of these nine uh, kings or pharaohs uh, of this dynasty that uh, plays a part in the book of Exodus here, okay? So 
Last week, we were able to see Achmos. He is now that king that we read about in verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This is a new dynasty. It's a new house. This is a house of Egyptians where before it was the Hyksos kings. That was a Semitic group of people that were ruling Egypt at that time. That's when Joseph, that's when Jacob and his family came into the land. Very favorable to them at that point. Well, now the Hyksox have been kicked out, and now you have a new house, a new dynasty, a new bloodline that is pure Egyptian. And so that begins here with Achmos. And I would submit to you that's the pharaoh or king that is spoken of in verse 8. Achmos reigned from 1570 B.C. to 1446 B.C. Again, this is the pharaoh that did not know Joseph. He has a son, Aminatep. The first, he reigns, but he dies childless, okay? Well, Achmos I had a child, that's Aminatep I, a son, but he also had a daughter, okay? But since Aminatep, who's reigning in his place, dies and doesn't have any children, well, guess what? Achmos' daughter married a man by the name of Thutmose. So Thutmose is the son-in-law to Achmos, okay? And so... Thutmose was married twice, and so he produced a daughter from his first marriage. She is known as Hatshepsut, and so he has a son by his second marriage, Thutmose II. So when Thutmose dies, Thutmose II reigns, okay? But Thutmose's, Thutmose II's sister, half-sister, is Hatshepsut, okay? so. Again, same father, Thutmose, but different mothers, all right? So now, Thutmose II dies, but he had a son, Thutmose III, but he was so young when Thutmose II died, he was probably about three, four, five years of age, that his aunt, Hatshepsut, reigned in his place, okay? And she controlled the throne, and she became the queen of Egypt. Hatshepsut also had a daughter, and she made Thutmose III marry her daughter. So as Thutmose III grew, he also he grew in his hatred for his aunt Hatshepsut, or however you pronounce her name, Hatshepsut. I've heard it both ways. Anyway, really no psych fans out there at all? Whatever. So this is the person that fishes Moses out of the Nile, is Hatshepsut. So, when she dies, her nephew, Thutmose III, tries to erase her memory from history. He destroys all the statues. Uh, he smears over uh, with plaster all the records of her made in stone in order to hide the fact she ever lived, goes after anyone associated with her, which is one of the reasons he goes after Moses, and Moses flees to Midian. And we'll get more into that here in a moment. So, Thutmose III has a son, Amenhotep II. He is the one, this is the pharaoh that the exodus occurs with. It's with this guy here. He is the one that Moses comes to and says, let my people go. He is the one that experienced the ten plagues. He is the one that personally experiences the tenth plague. And what happens at the 10th plague? If you don't smear the blood of the lamb, 
The angel of death is going to go and take your firstborn son. Which makes sense, because after he dies, the fourth is Aminotep's second son, not his first, because the first died in that tenth plague. So, um, in his reign, that's where Moses is wandering in the wilderness, for the most part. When he dies, Amenhotep the third reigns. That's when Joshua kind of goes in the land to conquer the land in Canaan. And when Amenhotep the the fourth reigns, this is about the time of the beginning of the judges. So, picking up here, setting the stage for for uh, chapter two here, saying again, verse twenty two. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, "Every son who is born, you shall cast into the river. Every daughter, you shall save alive." So in the first 15 verses here of chapter 2, this is going to describe the first 40 years of Moses. Verses 16 through 25 is going to describe the next 39 years to 40 years of the life of Moses. Um, in Exodus 7, verse 7, we read this. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh, which tells us that Aaron is older than Moses by three years. So we know that he has a brother Name Aaron, he's three years older, which is much older. As my brother is here, who's three years older. Um, <laughs> he said two years, four months. I, I round up. It's three, much older. So anyway, um, but and so so he he has an older brother. Well, he also has an older sister named Miriam that we're going to come in contact, uh, contact here in a moment. Okay. Um, and so we begin here in verse one, and it says, and a man of the house of Levi went, took as a wife, a daughter of Levi. So who is this? These are going to be Moses's parents. Okay. We know that he is a man of the house of Levi and he takes a wife of the daughter of Levi, but we don't give their names here. We get that later on in chapter six of Exodus In Exodus six, verse 19. These are the families of Levi, according to their generations. Now, Amram took for himself Jochebed and his fa his father's sister's wife, as she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137 years. So Amram lived under these very harsh conditions that the pharaohs have implemented on the people, and he still lives to 137 years. Hard work is not going to really be the death of you, okay? It makes you stronger is what it does. And he lived to be 137 years years old. The interesting thing here when I read this is that Moses' father Amram and his mother Jochebed, Moses' father Amram marries his aunt, his father's sister. I know. I know. But this is forbidden later on in Leviticus 18.12. So this is a good uh, 100, uh, probably 140 years before uh, it is becomes in the Mosaic Law. Uh, actually about hundred. Uh, 80 years. So um, so at this point, it's not forbidden. So in verse 2, it says, So the woman, that be Jochebed, conceived, bore a son, as we know as Moses. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Moses from the tribe of Levi, slaves and members of a hated race of people. Um, this woman conceived, who's Jochebed, uh, baby Moses, opens his eyes for the first time to a very, very unfriendly world. He was born in a superpower of a nation, but he was born a foreigner, an oppressed race during a time when all babies 
were under this royal death sentence. Nevertheless, Moses had something special in his favor. He was the child of believing parents. Now, I'm going to tell you something. No greater advantage does a child have than having believing parents. A greater advantage if they're raised by believing parents. But Dave, I came to the Lord later. My kid was already a teenager, and so doesn't matter. The very best thing you can do for your child ever is have a strong relationship with the Lord, that they can see Jesus in you, that they see you overcome every trial and tribulation that comes your way because you have the joy of the Lord, the joy of knowing where you're going, who you have pledged yourself to. And there's one thing that that kid has for him, a believing parent that will pray for them. I've only known the Lord for two years. My kid is already 40. That's all right. Guess what? Get to know the Lord, get close to the Lord, and be praying for your son, your daughters, your children. It's the best thing that they can have going for them, having believing parents. Hey, you have no idea what my kid is going through or what they decide to do with their life or whatever. You know what? doesn't matter. Best thing you could do for them, be a believing parent and pray for them. And be the person God has called you to be, because if you do that, they will see Jesus in you. And you might not even see them turn to the Lord until you're already with the Lord. But I guarantee you, God is going to use you if you're walking with him as a way to reach your children. Believing parents. And so what do they do? What they do is by faith, not because of their great love for their kids. It's because of their great love for God. Dave, how do you know that? Because it says so in Hebrews 11, 21. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they're not afraid of the king's command. They weren't fearful. They were faithful. At any moment, an Egyptian guard could pass by their house. He's now three months of age. His lungs have developed. No doubt he's able to cry very, very loudly. And any time an Egyptian soldier would go back and, and hear a cry of a child, they would need to investigate, is that a boy, is that a girl? Why haven't you thrown them in the river if it's a boy? You know. And so for three months, Jochebed, Moses' mother, must have been very anxious anytime Moses cried out because he was hungry. And yet they had Faith. Well, according to Romans 10, 17, where does faith come from? Faith, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. It's the only way you could have faith. The parents of Moses knew the word that was promised their father Abraham. They've heard the stories of their lineage and their God and know that to allow their son to die would be wrong. Both Moses' parents obviously have been taught the promises of God given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they respond out of obedience. And by faith, Moses' parents did what they did. And in Hebrews 6, we're told without faith, it's impossible to please God. So what they're doing here is pleasing God. And they're doing this by faith, not fear. Verse 3 says, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch put the child in it, laid it in the reeds by the river bank, 
and his sister, there we go, first mention of his sister right there, stood afar off to know what would be done to him. So he obviously has a sister that was much older that could stand afar off and, and be responsible enough to look after him, things like that, okay? And so we find out that her name is Miriam in Exodus chapter 15. Um, interesting that, uh, that J. Vernon McGee says this because of the fact they could no longer keep him hidden, you know, um, that his lungs, you know, that he'd probably scream and everything else. And it is a bit of a contrast because several years later when the Lord asked Moses to be a spokesman to Pharaoh, Moses says he cannot speak well. He certainly cried out for milk pretty loudly. J. Vernon McGee says this in his commentary. Many of us are good at crying like babies, but as adults, we do not do so well for speaking up for the Lord. Interesting how true that is. As Christians, there's many of us that scream out very loud, wanting to be heard, wanting others to know how uncomfortable we are, wanting others to always know what kind of trial we're enduring or suffering. But when it comes time to give a testimony, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're silent. We're silent. Moses' parents make an ark of bulrushes and seal it with pitch so it's not to take on water and it would float. And they placed it strategically in the reeds. They didn't just put it in the river and let it just kind of go down the river. They didn't do that. They placed it in the reeds where it would be held there and laid it right there at the river bank. And in a literal sense, Moses' parents did exactly what Pharaoh said to do. If it's a male child, put it in the river. And so they do. However, she took careful, uh, she was careful to make sure it was strategically placed in a place in the reeds that someone would find it. Moses' sister was also there to make sure that Moses would be all right, that he doesn't float down the stream, that it stays in the reeds there. And as you read this story, it becomes evident here that they knew what they were doing, that there was someone who comes by the riverbank on a pretty regular basis in order to bathe, in order to bathe. So Moses' parents had a plan. That's why they placed it there. That's why his sister would be watching over it. And again, this basket he was put in is called an ark. The Hebrew word for ark is tevei. It's the same word used for Noah's ark. This is very significant because I believe God is hinting here that God saved Moses in much the same way that God saved Noah and his family. God apparently intends to draw our attention to these both events. And in both events, those being saved are rescued from death, from drowning, by the vehicle of an ark. In Genesis 6-8, the salvation of the human race is involved. Here, the salvation of the chosen people is involved. Both Noah and Moses passed through the deadly waters by riding in an ark. That was their vessel of salvation. Verse 5. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. Notice it says daughter of Pharaoh. That is Queen Hatshepsut. She is the daughter of the I. Remember, Thutmose was married twice, produced a daughter from his first marriage, a son by his second. The daughter of the first marriage is here, right here, Hatshepsut. And the son of the second marriage is going to be Thutmose II. 
the half-brother to his older sister. And so when Thutmose I died, it was the second who reigned, produced his child, Thutmose III. And when Thutmose II died, Thutmose III was a child. So again, the aunt, Hatshepsut, is the one that reigns in his place. And he, she becomes the leader on the throne, the queen of Egypt. And so she's the one that's coming down here to bathe, but she's not a queen yet. She's not a queen yet. She becomes a queen later. And it says in verse 6, And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him. The maternal instincts of every woman, when they see a crying baby, is they go, aww. And the maternal instincts kick in here. This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Interesting that Miriam, Moses' sister, just kind of pops up. Pops up out of nowhere, makes a suggestion, you know, unless Moses' sister is one of her maidens. Then it makes sense. Then it makes sense. And she goes, again, shall I go and call the nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. The word maiden here is Alma, meaning young virgin or of meritable age. That means anywhere from 13 to 16 years of age. That's how old Miriam is here. So at least 13 years older than Moses. Okay. Um, and so I believe that Moses' sister was one of Pharaoh's daughter's uh, maidens. And, uh, and so then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away, nurse him for me. I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. I find this very fascinating that the very edict, the very command given by Pharaoh to try and weaken the Hebrew people, try and keep them under servitude, is the very means in which God is going to use to deliver the Jews. What brought Moses safely into Pharaoh's house? The edict to throw all the male babies into the river. This very command is the very thing that led to the eventual bringing about the Redeemer Moses to Israel. Again, this is so God that not only does Moses' sister Miriam fetch her mom to nurse Moses, she gets paid for it. She gets paid for it. Moses' mom still gets to raise little Moses Tell him about his real heritage, and at the same time gets paid for it. It shows how important those early years are. Moses had time to bond to his real mother, receive basic spiritual instruction from her. She only had a few years in which to teach him the most important lessons of life, but no doubt she prayed over him. No doubt that she also spoke to him about the love of God and the love of God for his people. And by the way, Moses, you're one of his people. He was living proof of the proverb that says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he shall not depart from it. Moses will always be Jochebed's son. But after he was fully weaned, he was adopted into the daughter of Pharaoh's household. That usually would be about year five, about five years of age. Fully weaned, okay? Um, and then verse 10 says, and the child grew. Again, grew. Um Maybe at this point by time Moses is five or soon thereafter, 
Hatshepsut became queen. But yet through that, all that time he's going to spend in her palace, he's not going to forget his Jewishness, his Jewish ancestry at all. And he knows he's a Jew. And it says she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Again, remember what most means. Moses, most. It means being drawn out of. Pharaoh's daughter named him that because she drew him out of the water. Again, like I mentioned last week, because he was brought out of the Nile, the, the, the uh, Hebrew word for Nile is har. Okay, and so they worshiped the Nile. And so they were always named after a certain deity that they worshiped. Again, here on this slide, we showed this last time. Most means drawn out or received out of. Hence, Akmos, okay, Ak is the Egyptian moon god. So again, drawn out or from or received from the moon god is what Akmos means. Thutmos means, Thut means Egyptian god of wisdom. Thutmos, or drawn out of wisdom, of the wisdom god. Okay, so, so many Hebrew scholars and other scholars, biblical scholars believe that his name was probably, uh, Har Mosher, because Har is, is the Nile. Okay, and Mosher is out of in, in Egyptian. And so Har Mosher is probably what he was called. All right. And so in the next 35 years, Moses, there'll be a time period where I think he drops that first part that I think I'll be able to show you here in a moment. But what we need to understand is that he was educated for the next 35 years in Pharaoh's courts and in, uh, uh, in the queen's palace and, and things like that. He was raised and educated, trained like an Egyptian. Moses would have been educated at the great temple of the sun, the outstanding university of its day. And all the royal court's offspring would have attended there. The knowledge of that day is staggering, very underrated. The Egyptians were very educated and advanced. Their knowledge of astronomy was amazing. They already knew the exact distance from the earth from the sun. 93 million miles. How did they calculate that? They already knew that. They had a theory that the earth was round. They were quite advanced in chemistry, which is evident by the way they embalmed the dead. We cannot even replicate that process of embalming today. Their workmanship with colors was amazing. Their colors were brighter than any we have today. Their formulas for paint lasted forever without fading. Archaeologists have uncovered colors on tiles and fabrics that are still bright after 4,000 years. Meanwhile, I have to keep painting my house every 7 to 10 years. I want that paint. The Egyptians had a tremendous library. Moses is very well educated, learning all the ways of the Egyptians. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is giving a history lesson to the Sanhedrin of where all the children of God came from, he's speaking of Moses in verse 20 says, At this time Moses was born, was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away, brought him up as her own son. He was not the son of a Pharaoh. He was the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. He was son of a queen. Queen raised him. Pharaoh did not. And Moses was learned in all wisdom of the Egyptians, was mighty in words and deeds. I'm going to bring that up again when he starts to complain to God. He has a stuttering problem. Really? You're supposedly mighty in words. Was he lying to God? 
and mighty in deeds. Josephus tells us that Moses led the armies of the Egyptians against the Ethiopians and had a great victory. Wow. He was a military man, trained in the art of war, the art of battle. Josephus also tells us that Moses was heir to the throne of Egypt. That's interesting. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, starting verse 24, which is the hall of faith, these are what these men and women have done that allowed for them to be written up as being men and women of great, great faith. And here it says in verse 24, by faith, Moses. So Moses did something by faith. So amazing that it's being mentioned here. Specifically, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Well, unless some inheritance was coming his way that is going to be great and mighty, that refusal, well, what's the big deal? Okay, you might have been rich and everything else, but if he was in line, to be the next Pharaoh, then whatever he refused here in the sense of being Pharaoh, (laughs) that'd be pretty great to refuse something like that. Something was offered to him, but he refused it. And because he refused it, he's written up for this specific action here in the Hall of Faith. For this. The interesting thing is, to me, is that the word refuse here is in the aorist tense, meaning a once and for all act. It had already occurred. It it occurred at one time, a certain time in the past. So there was a certain point when Moses was being groomed or was being told that this is what's going to come his way. And somewhere along that line, he came to whoever he needed to come to and says, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I refuse that. I'm going to identify with the Jewish people. What? Crazy. So there was a certain point where Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, refused the royalty, refused the wealth, refused the honor of what Egypt had to offer him in this dynasty. And I would submit to you that it's this point that Moses probably shortened his name, took off the hotter, which speaks of the Nile of a false deity. And maybe at that point just called him Moshe or Moses. Moses. And what does Moses decide at that moment that he refuses? Verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. I rather have the hardship that produces virtue over the honor and the wealth that is temporary. Wow. Why? Verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. That that right there should have a little... Wait a sec. You just mentioned Christ there. How did Moses know about Christ? He esteemed. 
held in high regard, the reproach of Christ, the reproach, the defaming, the insulting of being with Christ. Well, Christ, remember, this is the book of Hebrews, New Testament, written in what? Greek. Christ means anointed one. Equivalent to Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, which also means anointed one. So this could read, if it was in the Hebrew, it would read, the esteeming the reproach of the Messiah, Mashiach. Greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. What this tells me is that Moses held in higher esteem and honor the reproach or defamation to be talked poorly about for the sake of the Messiah who is to come. Somehow Moses has been taught about the Messiah coming from the chosen people, the Jews. Moses understood the messianic program which God would bring about. The Messiah would be fulfilled with the people of Israel, his people. And Moses rather be a part of that instead of the riches of Egypt. Moses chose rather to identify himself with the slaves of his people, the ones God has chosen to bring about a great nation that will bless the whole earth through the Jewish Messiah. So this refusal was a specific act by Moses. He knew God's program, that Jewish messianic program, to bring about a better kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, which is much better than the kingdom offered to him by Egypt that would be passing away. And that's going to be his reward. He wanted that. He wanted that. And he refused all that the world had to offer him, which was a lot. He refused that. Verse 11, Exodus chapter 2. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren, looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, what's he looking for? Want to make sure that who wasn't around? Egyptians. And when he looked this way and that way, when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Where else are you going to hide him? It's Egypt. So they have a sand. So he looks one way to the other. Why? He wants to make sure there's no other Egyptian around. And when he kills the Egyptian, he buries him in the sand. Verse 13. When he went out the second day, Behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. Said to one, uh, said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Here Moses begins to intervene. He's going, Certainly they'll listen to me because they were probably there when I smote this Egyptian that was beating on this Jew. Certainly they're going to be, you know, I, they're going to think I'm all that because I defended them. And, you know, all, all those kind of things are probably going through his end. He thinks, I, If anybody has a right to intervene, it'd be me. Because I obviously know what I'm doing, and I know right from wrong, and I'm here to help you guys, and all those kind of things are probably going on in his head. He wants to know, why are you fighting? You're supposed to be on the same side, your brothers. And then he said, who made you prince and judge over us? Whoa. Let's, you know, cap the attitude a little bit. All right? I know you know what I did for that other Jewish guy yesterday, so what? what's the problem here? You know? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? What? And Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Jewish people aren't grateful for what Moses had done. 
this thing is known. Okay. And then it says in verse 15, when Pharaoh heard about this matter, well, how'd you hear about it? No Egyptian saw it. So how'd you hear about it? Because one of his own, one of his Jewish brethren ratted him out. That's how. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh, dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by the well. So, now I want you to go to Acts chapter 7. Now we've always quoted from it, but now I want you to go there. I don't give you everything on a slide. There's some work you need to do. Go to Acts 7. Acts chapter 7, again, this is still Stephen. He's still giving the history of God's chosen people. He's talking about Moses here. Verse 23, now when he was 40 years old, came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he, meaning Moses, supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. Somehow Moses knows he's the one that is supposed to deliver the Jews from the Egyptians somewhere along the line. Through his mother, through his sister, someone somehow has been able to reveal to him that not only is a Jew and he's never forgotten his Jewish identity, but there was going to be a time and a place when he is the one that is being called to be the deliverer of the Jews. And he thought the Jews understood that. And so when he went out to just check on his brethren, and when he saw that, he thought they would understand he's the deliverer of, of, uh, of Israel. And so, of course, he killed the Egyptian because he's going to be the one that delivers them. So the next day when he goes out, and in a very disparaging fashion, they go, well, who made you judge over us? He could tell at that point. And are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? He realized at that point, they don't get it. They don't know that I'm supposed to be the deliverer for them. And so because of that, it's just a matter of time before they wrap me out. And they did. Because he says right here, for he supposed that his brothers would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses was rejected by his brethren, the Jews. They ratted him out to Pharaoh. And so Moses is now going to flee to Midian. Now, most likely his stepmother, Hatshepsut, is now dead. The queen is dead. But Moses, up until this point, has had some street cred, okay, with the Egyptian people being a military hero. This would be the reason why when Thutmose III comes to power, he doesn't go directly and attack and try and kill Moses because the people wouldn't have liked that. He's the guy that led us into victory against the Ethiopians. But now that Moses has killed an Egyptian, now Thutmose III will be able to say, now the people will probably turn to Moses because how dare you kill a fellow Egyptian, okay? And so now he can go after him. Now Moses sees and understands if Pharaoh hears about this, he'll want to kill him. And so this is the reason why he flees to Midian. Now where's Midian? Well, land of Goshen's over here, okay? So he fled and went all the way over to here. Okay, Midian, okay? That right there is about 300 miles. So if he was booking it at 20 uh, miles uh, a day or whatever, he would have gotten there in 15 days, all right, without any other mishaps or whatever. So a little over two weeks 
is what it would have taken him. And then he sits down by a well. And now we're going to have the next 40 years of Moses' life here in Midian. In verse 16, it says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came, drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Remember Moses, he's a military man, trained in the art of battle, being a soldier. And so he sees the wrongdoing of these shepherds, and so he stands up for these uh, the daughters of Midian, uh, the priest of Midian, and uh, these other shepherds back down. They back down. And so he helps them, and he waters their flock. And so in verse 18, when they came to Ruel, his fa- their father, he said, how is it that you have come so soon today? So it seems to be that every time they went to water the flock, you know, uh, the, the priest of Midian there, their father, realized it's going to take a while because the other shepherds will be showing up and they're going to, you know, want to do their flock first. And so it takes a few. And then here they come back early. And he's going, what's up? You've already watered them? The word Ruel here, that name means friend of God is what that means. Now, where did the Midianites come from? They're descendants of Abraham and his last wife, Keturah. Okay, so they would have been acquainted with the stories of Abraham's journey. They would know about Abraham's God. And yet this is one of the first people Moses meets in Midian, a priest named Ruel. And Ruel and Moses share Abraham as a common ancestor. And Ruel's name has L for that last syllable. It speaks again about the God of the Hebrews. And so their father Ruel was surprised. And so I would submit to you that he is a worshiper of God, the God of the Hebrews. And so he was surprised the girls got home soon. Um, and so they say, well, an Egyptian delivered us. So that tells me he probably still had the Egyptian guard on, look like an Egyptian. Okay. No, I'm not going to say walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> Bengals playing in the background, you know, as he came up. Um, but he also drew water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, well, where is he? If this guy did such a great work for you guys, why didn't you bring him back so I could meet him and we could show him hospitality and give him thanks for what he has done? Why haven't you done that? Where is he? Why is it that you've left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And so they do. Then Moses was content to live with the man and he gave uh, Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. Okay, so Moses comes stays with Ruel, and over time, you know, um, he gives him his daughter as a wife. Um, Zipporah means bird, is what that means. means bird. Now, the Irish rock group U2 has a song that says they still haven't found what they're looking for. Our standard living as Americans has increased every decade. Yet the overall level of happiness with American people has never changed. It's never changed. It's not increased at all. Other areas of contemporary life has advanced. Before COVID, the average life expectancy was 77 years. Up from 41 years at the turn of the 20th century. It's quite a bit. It's almost double at that point. They defeated polio, smallpox, measles, rickets. They got through all that. We've gotten through COVID. At the end of back-breaking physical toil for most wage earners, 
That isn't the case anymore. Instantaneous global communication is there. Same-day travel to distant cities, mass home ownership, incredible advances of freedom. Our great-great-grandparents would say, oh, you must be living in utopian society now. They're not even close. Not even close. And yet, although everything is better compared to years past, no one is happier. The percentage of Americans who describes himself as happy has not changed since the 1950s. Though the average income has tripled, quadrupled, happiness has not increased here in the United States, nor has it in Western Europe. All who live better lives than those who have lived before them, they all say they're discontent. Why? The reason that nothing satisfies here on earth is because of something I believe that C.S. Lewis sums up best when he said this. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. C.S. Lewis was a deep, deep thinker in the Lord. Great theologian, wrote the book Mere Christianity and many other things. Our problem here on earth is that we do not belong here because we've been created to live in the presence of God. And God's presence, even though it's inside of us once we receive Jesus, to be actually see him face to face is going to happen when we are in heaven. Randy Alcorn, in his book, he talks about, in his book, Heaven, he says, we're all, if you're believing the Lord Jesus Christ, you become homesick. He says, nothing is more misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large flat screen TV, a new car, cabin in the woods, condo in Hawaii. What we really want is a person. We were made for a person, and that person is Jesus. And the place we were made for is heaven, and nothing less can satisfy. Nothing less. Moses understood this. He would rather be a part of something and suffer affliction in the, in the name of virtue for a reward that's going to come much later. I got to tell you something. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you care more about the hardship that you're willing to endure in order to increase virtue and your understanding of the Lord to get to a place that's in the future, I will tell you something. You will be happier. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The problem is, is that we have a tendency to gravitate our flesh to things of this earth, and they do not satisfy. This is why Jesus would come along and say this, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I've explained this time and time again. But when you read that, you don't quite get what is being said there. We think it's the same thing as where your heart is, your treasure is. Jesus is just saying the same thing. No, he's not. He's saying it completely backwards. Because the natural affection of a person is that he feels first. And then he invests in what he feels. Oh, look at that car. So shiny. I will now pay for that car. 
But you don't pay for the car without feeling for the car first. That's the way everything is in this world. Ooh, I feel for that. Ooh, that's awesome. Let me pay for that. Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. Treasure in the things that you know you're supposed to treasure in. And here's the interesting thing. Because you know God and you know that he tells you the things you're to treasure in, as you do that, guess what happens? Your heart comes over. And now you begin to desire what God desires. Because you first invested in what you know is truth, and that is his word. And the moment you begin to invest in what you know as above and beyond how you feel, you grow. You become mature in Christ, and you get excited about your future with him. Huge difference. Huge difference. We also read in Colossians 3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth. Treasure in those things. The Lord is coming back. Don't you understand you have an inheritance that's incorruptible? No one can take it away. You've received Christ. He's inside of you. You have the Holy Spirit. And now as you go and do and treasure in the things of God, he says rewards are being built up for you in heaven. And you get excited about that. You know there is a kingdom to come and you get to be a part of it. And until then, you get to be a part of what God is doing here in order to do what? Increase the kingdom of God in the lives of other people. You get to invest. And you need to, and you can give money to missionaries as they're advancing the kingdom of God. You get to invest in kids and grandkids. You get to invest in your spouse. You get to invest in the people that you work with, your neighborhood, to be a light and a witness. For what reason? The purpose of Christ? To treasure in the things to come in order to advance the kingdom of God? to be the light and a witness and know that you're going to be called to a place where do you really esteem the reproach of Christ other than what the world has to offer? Do you really? Because God will always bring you to that place where someone will make fun of your faith. Or as you stand up, they will. the backlash will just be huge. And do you care more about the backlash so you remain silent? And when that testimony is needed, you don't say anything because you don't want to rock the boat. If you have the vision, that Moses has. I'd rather go through the hardship that I know is building a virtue in me and knowing that it is it is reaping rewards on the other side and knowing that I get to be about that kingdom than this kingdom that's, that, that, that is temporary. Your whole life here on earth changes. It changes. Moses sought after the promise, the promise of a greater future outside of Egypt. He wanted to be a part of what God was doing, not what the world is doing. You know what the world is doing? It's going down. It's going down. I don't want anything to do with that. So we end here in verse 22. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom. Gershom means foreigner. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. That's where we're going to stop here today. Um, I always know it's time to stop when the worship team gathers in the back. So bring it on up. Um, But it's really verse 23 that, that brings you into chapter 3. Okay? So let's pray. Let's pray.